Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Intervals, a public humanities podcasting initiative of the Organization of American Historians. I'm Christopher Brick here on behalf of the OAH Committee on Marketing and Communications, and I'm here as well to welcome our fourth guest lecturer of the series, Dr. Philippa Cook, who's joining us today from the Department of Religious Studies at Missouri State University, where she's currently an assistant professor. If you joined us for the episode that precedes this one, Carolyn Eastman's lecture on the New York City yellow fever epidemics of the 1790s, then you already have some familiarity with the symptoms that yellow fever inflicted on the human host that it infected. These include body aches, fevers, chills, nausea, vomiting, excruciating headaches, and in the severe cases experienced by about a fifth of all patients. This includes also kidney and liver damage, internal bleeding, the characteristic yellowing of the skin from jaundice, organ failure, and eventually death. Painful and terrifying, yellow fever infection was an unpleasant thing to experience even in mild cases, and full-blown outbreaks were known to prompt the kind of exodus from urban centers that we saw during the most acute stage of the COVID-19 pandemic in the spring of 2020. With plenty of reason to escape the dreaded mosquito-transmitted plague, many Philadelphians fled into the countryside during the summer of 1793. As yellow fever transformed much of their city into a pestilential stew of illness, suffering, and death. For those who remained behind, however, the difficult work of healing the sick, caring for the dead, and comforting fellow survivors all drew upon a range of outputs they were able to marshal in response. Philadelphians visited, nursed, and counseled the sick, buried the dead, established committees for relief and created institutions such as hospitals and orphanages. These responses also included a range of immaterial inputs that Pippa uses to bring us into these inner lives of these Philadelphians. Things like the resilience they derived from spirituality and faith community, the ideological resources associated with theological concepts like providence and Enlightenment-era notions of human sympathy and benevolence, and the narratives of direction and mercy that they called upon to process the moment and integrate it into their concepts of self and society. Through writings left behind by people like the German pietist pastor Heinrich Helmut, the African-American Methodist ministers Absalom Jones and Richard Allen, the Presbyterian physician John Redman, as well as community institutions like the Committee to Attend to and Alleviate the Sufferings of the Afflicted with the Malignant Fever. Pippa's lecture invites us to consider how sectarian identities compounded and competed with other categories like race, class, ethnicity, and gender in the response to Philadelphia's yellow fever epidemic of 1793. And if I might just add to that, this was also one of the most subtle and immersive talks of the entire series for me, in my opinion. I've listened to it several times now, and it's one of those lectures that rewards you for multiple listens. Each time I go back to it, there's another connection I'm able to draw or 
another new bit of of uh, density I hadn't realized was there, and that in turn enables me to take away some new and valuable insight that I didn't notice lurking there in Pippa's wonderful analysis. Uh, it bodes well, I think, for uh, her first book, The Course of God's Providence, Religion, Health, and the Body in Early America, which is due out from uh, NYU Press in the spring of 2021. In it, she examines how Christian communities responded to sickness and epidemics in the context of ever new medical and scientific developments and how these developments shaped their view of God. Her work has appeared in plenty of impressive journals like Religions, Church History, The Atlantic, Sightings, and now so too here on the Intervals Pod. And with that, I give you Dr. Philippa Cook on Providence and Benevolence in Philadelphia's Yellow Fever of 1793. This is a story about the role of religion in Philadelphia's yellow fever epidemic of 1793. The 1793 epidemic occurred at the cusp of the modern political era in a world transformed by the free exercise of religion. The story of this epidemic, however, offers a brief but vivid window into how religious commitment continued to shape American individuals and communities in their response to sickness and suffering. Historians have recognized that the 1793 epidemic was a momentous event for the new United States. Philadelphia was its capital city at the time, and scholars have explored the epidemic's implication for early national politics, along with medicine, literature, and race relations. Responses to the epidemic magnify broader trends in America's religious history, including the privatization of charity and the emergence of humanitarianism in the 19th century. Some scholars have seen such privatization and humanitarianism as critical to the development of a secular age, suggesting that such civic-minded and charitable work was a sure sign that early Americans were less interested in waiting on God to help and more confident in their own efforts to change and improve human life and suffering. What I want to show here, however, is that the benevolent endeavors, the human responses to yellow fever, were in fact defined by religion. In particular, long-standing Christian narratives of God's direction or God's providence. When they told their stories of yellow fever, early Americans continued to show a commitment to God's role in human history, both in sending sickness and in encouraging acts of charity and service. When we think about religion and epidemics today, we might have some negative connotations. You may have heard of evangelists blaming a specific population or a specific sin for a disease. HIV-AIDS is a very obvious example, but even the COVID-19 pandemic has spurred this kind of religious talk. Most people view such language as old-fashioned, a relic of the past. They often assume that this must be how people in early America thought about disease. In their ignorant piousness, the story goes, early Americans assumed God was punishing them and they passively awaited their fate. 
Authoritarian ministers, meanwhile, took advantage of this understanding to cement their power over scared communities. This story is far from the truth. Most colonists in early America were Christians, and most believed in God's providence, including in sending disease. But they were also convinced that God called humans to respond to disease. Humans should repent, of course. They should do the spiritual work of recognizing their sin and dependence on God. But Christians also saw room for activity outside of this spiritual realm. They found a call to write about disease, to use medicine, and to help others. Sometimes they had to fit their responses into patterns prescribed by their ministers or other authorities. But it's worth digging into these prescriptions. What purposes did these narratives, this charitable work, serve? And that's what I want to dig into today. The 1793 yellow fever epidemic came at a very interesting point in the story of American religion. The Enlightenment had come to America, and it challenged some traditional Christian ideas and communities. There were ideas of a more hands-off God who gave humans an innate sense of compassion or sympathy, such that the work of serving one's neighbor was no longer a response to God's command, but rather rooted in human feelings, insensibility. Benevolence, meanwhile, had long been a term associated with God's goodwill toward creation. By the end of the 18th century, it had shifted to describe human efforts to do good. Some Christians tried to bring enlightenment and Christian ideas together by arguing for a notion of disinterested benevolence. Christians should not do good simply for their own sense of pleasure, self-interest, or salvation. Rather, charity should always be grounded in self-sacrifice. Despite such efforts, the term benevolence never escaped skeptics. And still to this day, many will argue that benevolence is rooted in selfishness or a desire for power or control. You can see this skepticism in historians who rightly point out how, in the name of benevolence, reformers could seek to control certain populations, often using racist or xenophobic ideas and language. Such skepticism can be taken to extremes, as evidenced in the COVID-19 pandemic today and conspiracies over Gates Foundation funding for vaccines. The question of why someone would do good works clearly remains alive and well for us today. When looking at the yellow fever responses, that question of motivation is paramount, and it demands us to consider religion. Why did people stay and work with the sick and suffering during the yellow fever. Not everyone had the means or opportunity to leave the city, but many Philadelphians went to great lengths to flee the misery, the chaos, and the death. But some chose to stay and serve their sick neighbors willingly. The epidemic gives us a chance to see how early Americans worked on this question of motivation of benevolence 
on the ground. It was a time when these questions were newly contested as enlightenment ideas about benevolence spread, but many still insisted on God's direction over human actions. Here, I will look at a few different voices to give a sense of the diversity of responses. These include a German-speaking pietist pastor, Heinrich Helmut, who led the largest Lutheran congregation in North America called St. Michael's and Zion. I'll consider a group of private citizens who formed to organize city efforts when elected officials fled, called the Committee to Attend to and Alleviate the Sufferings of the Afflicted with the Malignant Fever. And finally, we'll look at the African-American ministers, Absalom Jones and Richard Allen, who organized Black nurses and undertakers. All of these responses had to negotiate the question of human motivation and God's direction. In the end, I argue, writing about God's direction or God's providence over the epidemic remained a significant way to find community purpose and belonging in a terrible time. For the Lutheran pastor, Heinrich Helmut, writing was an essential comfort during the yellow fever epidemic. He filled his daily journal with details of suffering and afterward published an account. His journal entries written in small volumes, only a bit bigger than your hand, were evocative of the challenges he faced, both spiritual and physical. Helmut's work was unrelenting. In the days he visited, buried, organized. In the evenings, he struggled with his faith and dreaded sleep punctuated by disturbing dreams. Echoing generations of Christians before him, Helmut perceived the epidemic as God's chastising hand upon a city of sinners. Based on this interpretation, he attempted to discern the human response sought by God. In his published volume, which was appearing in both German and English, called A Short Account of the Yellow Fever, he bemoaned Philadelphia's sinful luxuries, theater and circus, and corresponding lack of care for widows and orphans. The reason for God's judgment was clear, according to Helmut. They needed to take care of their neighbors. Helmut's interest in charity was longstanding, as a child, he had been a charity student at the Orphan House of the Franca Foundations in Halle, Germany, where he eventually taught before accepting a call to Pennsylvania in 1768. Influenced by this background and the emerging mutual aid and voluntary societies in Philadelphia, Helmut's congregation founded the Society for the Support of the Honest Needy Poor. This work was shaped by a sense of God's direction. But Helmut also turned to the common-sense philosophy that pervaded conversations on benevolence. He acknowledged that humans had an innate sense of sympathy. The desire to do good, to act benevolently, was a natural instinct. But despite his openness to this new optimism about human nature, Helmut still grounded it in God's providence. He retained a deep sense of human sin, and he saw that any innate benevolence could be thwarted by other human instincts, including fear 
without God's providential intervention. In confronting the yellow fever, Helmut struggled between this acknowledgement of an innate human compassion and his belief in providence. The fever demonstrated the breakdown of human sympathy without God's direction and intervention. While there were instances of humanity and hospitality, there was also inhuman brutality. Disturbed by his work, by the sounds and smells of people dying alone, Helmut confided in his journal, My God, what is becoming of us miserable worms? In response to this social disintegration, Helmut urged his community not to flee, but rather to dig into the misery, despite the terror and inhumanity. Helmut recognized the difficulty of this task because he daily saw how fear had thwarted the most basic of human instincts, the love among families. He told of anxious relatives standing at a distance from an ailing beloved, those who had the least of occupations, those who tended the dead, proved significant in this trying time. Unlike family, they were the few people who were willing to touch the dead, place them in coffins, and offer a final human dignity. Funeral processions were stripped down to these few workers and Helmut, a marked difference from the norm. Helmut recognized that his community had been paralyzed and unable to perform basic functions of human compassion, He was not alone in his concern for the limits of innate human sympathy. The Scottish common-sense philosopher Thomas Reed saw a difference between benevolence as an affection and benevolence as a virtue. The former was a propensity to do good from natural constitution or habit without regard to rectitude or duty. The latter, benevolence as a virtue, was a fixed purpose or resolution to do good when we have opportunity from a conviction that it is right and is our duty. For Reed, the answer to a breakdown in benevolence was to root it not in the passions, but in a fixed principle grounded in human reason and judgment. For Helmut, the answer to such a breakdown was to turn to God. He meditated on Christ's passion. I pushed myself as a poor, poor sinner in the wounds of Jesus, a right poor worm. Helmut found hope and a calling in God, and he tried to convey this in his writing. The epidemic had made the world, quote, disappear before his eyes like a shadow. He had to make meaning of a life transformed, and to do so he needed a record that began to interpret what had happened. In his published account, he attributed both his faith and his service to God, and he recognized with joy that his experiences during the epidemic would define his Christian life and his career. He wrote, I may cherish the unmerited hope that the Lord graciously made use of me to lead many a soul to salvation, and oh, my God, what happiness! to be instrumental in saving a soul. Not for our world would I barter the personal advantage which I have derived from the mortality in Philadelphia. Forget not, O my soul, what the Lord has conferred upon thee, 
unworthy as thou art. While Helmut saw and felt the misery of the epidemic, by the end he had come to recognize how it changed his life. The epidemic would forever be part of his reputation as a Christian minister, and his published account ensured that. There is an air of enlightenment self-interest in his description of the happiness and personal advantage he received. Yet he took care to include a Christian interpretation. He called himself an unworthy servant in reference to Luke 17.10, explaining he had merely done his duty. His faith and his service in furthering the Christian faith of others were the true focus. Helmut's happiness was not the happiness of a more skeptical era. A happiness found in personal fulfillment and this worldly ends. He grounded his happiness here, rather, in the fact that his retrospective account confirmed God's guidance over his life, his faith, and his service to others. As Helmut worked among the German-speaking Lutherans, a group of English-speaking men gathered in City Hall to address the organizational vacuum created by the epidemic. Many political leaders had fled the city, and by early September, the mayor, Matthew Clarkson, along with those overseers of the poor who had remained, placed an advertisement in the city's papers seeking the assistance of benevolent citizens. Within days, the committee to attend to and alleviate the sufferings of the afflicted with the malignant fever had formed. It met daily in City Hall until the epidemic abated in late October, and continued meeting periodically after. Like Helmut, the committee members recognized that sympathy and compassion were not enough to encourage people to fulfill basic human duties in an epidemic. Unlike Helmut, the committee focused its attention not on God, but rather on its responsibility for reestablishing order. The minutes stressed repeatedly that with good order, people might again behave with consideration toward their neighbors. The committee did turn eventually to a general sense of providence in its efforts to comprehend fully the extent and meaning of the epidemic and its actions. But this was secondary in the early minutes. Upon its formation, the committee acted immediately, citing a joint commitment to sympathy and order. They focused first attention on the hospital at Bush Hill. Two members, Stephen Girard and Peter Helm, volunteered to lead, making efficient improvements to the hospital's cleanliness, staff, and patient care. Establishing the good order of the hospital was essential to easing the epidemic and its effect on the city, to establishing trust with Philadelphians. The committee also took charge of the burial of the dead. After hearing citizens' complaints, they changed the Carter's route from the hospital through town, urged coffin makers to make more, take more care, and they reported on burial grounds. Although the committee did not understand the cause or transmission of yellow fever, it was convinced that proper care of both the living and the dead would benefit the city's overall health. The committee cited, finally, a duty incumbent to look after the orphans, It organized a committee to care for them, found a suitable house for them, and coordinated donations from fellow citizens. It could be argued that the committee's efforts to reestablish order 
were motivated by an interest in social control and economic concerns, an argument made about charity and benevolence in other historical eras. The endless lists of names of those admitted to the hospital, to the orphanage, to the potter's field, certainly evidence how the epidemic created an opportunity for modern bureaucracy. It could also be argued that the charitable responses represented an effort to enforce a Protestant ethic of discipline, criticizing the idle and extolling the industrious citizens who went about their duty. It is nonetheless important to remember that in the immediate context of the epidemic, the committee's order and leadership were also essential to relieving distress. They ensured that the sick would be visited, corpses would be carted away and buried, and orphans would be cared for. It is impossible to know the motivations of those who worked on behalf of this order, but their writings offer insight into manifold overlapping concerns. These included not only human sympathy and economic and political interests, but also conceptions of divine judgment and Christian duty. The committee men were lay professionals, mostly of middling backgrounds. Not normally included in civic leadership, they had an opportunity to change the city when government officials had fled. They were anxious to prove themselves, but they also demonstrated apprehension about the future of the city, the nation, and the individual, which often manifested itself in explicitly providential terms. Behind the detailed accounting, the committee's minutes often pulsed with a narrative of divine punishment and the redemption of the nation. This narrative is especially evident in the records of donations the committee received. When other cities donated money and goods, they described God's judgment on the city as a judgment on fellow citizens of the American nation. This providential and national framework was crucial. Through their sense of shared divine judgment, they were drawn together in charity, dismayed by the fact that the capital city of the new nation suffered such a setback. The Common Council of New York City sent $5,000 and offered more, writing that they were deeply impressed with the awful judgment of the Almighty on the American nation in permitting a pestilential disease to lay waste and disorganize that once populous, well-regulated, and flourishing sister city, the seat of empire, by destroying the lives of many valuable patriots and citizens, and by driving many others of its numerous and very opulent and useful inhabitants into exile. The letter concluded with a reference to a biblical plague, praying that God speedily stay the progress of the desolating disease and say it is enough. In his response to the donation, Clarkson, the mayor of Philadelphia, acknowledged the New York Council's benevolence and sympathy as, quote, balm to our wounds, a scripturally laden reference to healing. Clarkson described the, design, that the divine interposition that touched their lives, not only in sending the epidemic, but also in seeing that the, quote, hearts of so many around us have been touched with our distress and have united in our relief. He prayed that the almighty disposer of all events protect others from the disease. 
Some scholars have interpreted the committee's use of phrases like almighty disposer of all events and great ruler of the universe as an example of the adoption of fashionable deistic terminology and a sign of growing secularization. But the God who disposes all events is different from a deistic God. As the committee and its benefactors discuss the meaning of the epidemic, charity, and compassion, they in fact maintained a Christian providential framework. They tightly bound God's judgment with hope and a call for human effort. Clarkson accepted the divine judgment on his city, writing, We humbly kiss the rod and improve by the dispensation. And he hoped for redemption, which was already evident in the bonds of human sympathy. As with Helmut, members of the committee found meaning in looking back and narrating their experiences. The minutes thanked divine providence for the, quote, agreeable prospect of returning health to our long-afflicted city. And they adjourned for a day in order to allow members to attend church. The committee's final report both acknowledged four members' deaths and reflected with gratitude on the preservation of our own lives and those of so many of our fellow citizens. After pages of detailed minutes describing human efforts, the committee concluded with a final appeal to providence. The writing of one committee member, the publisher and author Matthew Carey, highlights one member's understanding. Although Carey fled for a period of three weeks, his time in the city affected him. In a popular publication, a short account of the malignant fever, he reflected on human nature, remarking on instances of disinterested humanity that he had witnessed. He surmised that leaders found reward in a self-approving conscience, but he wanted to place their names in print for subsequent generations to emulate. He describes his work of narrating this as the, quote, highest consolation I have ever experienced. Carey depended on a very rational creator God. He criticized congregations that continued to worship through the epidemic, arguing that such mistaken zeal actually furthered the contagion. Such action exemplified an incorrect understanding of God's providence, he argued. Instead of focusing on God's law, God's commandment to worship, humans should focus on the law implanted in their very nature, the law of self-preservation. This law, according to Carey, was written in indelible characters by his divine hand on the breast of every one of his creatures. Breaking the fundamental law of self-preservation was no proper way to adore the maker and preserver of mankind. Carey suggested here that the law of nature, implanted by God, supplanted the law of the Old Testament. Carey's rational general overseer, God, differed from Helmut's active intervening God. Vestiges of a Christian providential framework remained in Carey's account, however, when he described the joy he experienced in comprehending the meaning of the epidemic and human responses to it. He concluded with thanksgiving to that supreme being who has, in his own time, 
stayed the avenging storm, ready to devour us after it had laughed to scorn all human efforts. Human efforts were, in the end, nothing without a supporting transcendent force. Carrie found pleasure in witnessing incredible acts of charity. When a human, quote, resembles in a small degree that divine being who is an inexhaustible mine of mercy and goodness, end quote. Like Helmut, Carrie found a sort of personal advantage in his work among the sick. Unlike Helmut, he was unwilling to attribute his pleasure to God's intervention. But he nonetheless perceived in the divine being a model of mercy and goodness for humans to emulate. Carrie and the committee relied on providence to make sense of the suffering around them and their responses to it. Although more general than the providence that pervaded Helmut's writings, the divine, the almighty, or the supreme being played an important role. It allowed them to express their conviction that both the suffering and their benevolent actions had significance beyond the immediate event. They were part of a plan to help the city. Their accounts suggested that while humans might fail, there was a timeless model for compassion in the divine, one that inspired their efforts and their hope. As a printer, Carrie seized the opportunity to publish the first account of the epidemic, and he released multiple editions. His account gained authoritative status, privileging the story of the committee's response. In so doing, Carrie disregarded and degraded the contributions of other communities, including Black nurses. In response, African-American ministers Absalom Jones and Richard Allen published their own account of the yellow fever, defending Black nurses from charges of misconduct, extortion, and theft, shaped by their years in the Methodist Episcopal Church and participation in Philadelphia's voluntary societies, Jones and Allen explained the Black community's response as a result of their own free will and God's providence, and as an example of their civic belonging and participation in the era's central concerns of human sympathy and benevolence. Black nurses and workers were a central part of the response to the yellow fever. These men and women cared for the dying, nursed hundreds back to health, and buried the dead. And despite erroneous medical claims that blacks were immune to yellow fever, many became sick during their efforts and died alongside white Philadelphians. While Carrie briefly praised the efforts of Jones and Allen, who organized the nurses, and William Gray, who took charge of the burials, he mostly disparaged the efforts of Black responders. He claimed that they took advantage of their desperate patients to steal and charge high fees. Jones and Allen responded to Carrie's narrative with an account of their own, a narrative of the proceedings of the Black people, during the late awful calamity in Philadelphia in the year 1793. Scholars have emphasized the uniqueness of Jones and Allen's narrative. It was the first published account in which African Americans responded directly to white accusations. But in important ways, it is not unique at all. It confirmed that the Black community was also guided by principles of Christian charity and human sympathy, overseen by God's grace and mercy. Like Helmut and the committee, 
Philadelphia's Black community was comprised of Christian and civic-minded human beings dedicated to serving their neighbors and doing God's will. In the late 18th century, Philadelphia's free Black community was the largest in the United States. Despite its size and the sympathy of anti-slavery white Pennsylvanians, the community's position remained precarious. They were affected by the guidelines of gradual emancipation, schemes of colonization that would resettle Blacks in Africa or elsewhere, and the 1793 Fugitive Slave Act, which required the return of escaped enslaved persons and potentially promoted the kidnapping of free Blacks. From this context, several Black leaders emerged, including Jones and Allen. They were instrumental in the Free African Society and a new African church, institutions that mirrored white charitable efforts and communities. Problems nonetheless continued for Philadelphia Blacks. Some white clergy did not approve of the new African church and retaliated by segregating Black parishioners, while some white benefactors turned their attention to plantation owners from Saint-Domingue escaping a 1791 uprising of enslaved peoples. The yellow fever epidemic occurred in this period when Philadelphia's free Blacks sought to emerge as an autonomous community. Their response was an opportunity to demonstrate their role in the city. Thus, in their narrative, Jones and Allen relied on language that would be familiar to all Philadelphians. They showed that Philadelphia's free Black community voluntarily participated in the same tradition of human affection and providential guidance that characterized white efforts and writings. From early in the narrative, Jones and Allen explained Black workers' duty as a matter of free choice. Like the men who served on the committee, they responded to a public appeal for aid, but they emphasized that their response was entirely their own, a charge we took upon us. Not as slaves, but as fellow mortals, they freely sought to help the suffering by recruiting nurses and burying the dead. Jones and Allen emphasized the voluntary nature of their work for two reasons. First, influenced by Methodist teachings, they believed that humans had free will in matters of salvation, including in the good works they chose to do as they sought a life of sanctification. Second, they emphasized their participation in the culture of voluntary and mutual aid societies. They performed their duties, they wrote, out of a real sensibility. We sought not fee nor reward. This was a direct response to Carrie's accusation of extortion, but the language of sensibility also stressed their connection to wider benevolent networks. As nurses, they engaged in the finer feelings and acts of humanity, and their care of patients, both black and white. They exemplified Christian good works and benevolence to a greater extent than most whites. Jones and Allen did describe the attention of one white man, the physician Benjamin Rush, who encouraged their work and connected them to understandings of Christian service within Philadelphia's contemporary medical society. Rush taught them how to bleed patients, for better or worse, to prepare medicine and to call on him when necessary. In Rush, Jones and Allen chose a respected model of Christian benevolence. Rush had studied medicine first under the physician John Redman, 
a Presbyterian from whom he learned medicine as a work directed by God for the good of humanity. Jones and Allen likewise explained their nursing work as directed by God. Quote, We have been the instruments in the hand of God for saving the lives of some hundreds of our suffering fellow mortals. By placing themselves in the company of Christian physicians like Rush, who accepted pay, Jones and Allen pointed to the value of their work. Economic self-interest and Christian benevolence could go together. They respected individual Black workers' decisions to choose their compensation. Anecdotes suggest that a few nurses avoided payment. One female nurse refused pay, saying, If I go for money, God will see it and maybe make me take the disorder and die. But if I go and take no money, he may spare my life. Such stories suggest an anxiety about the nature of good works and whether human motivations might affect God's acceptance. Because Methodists believed they were free to contribute to their salvation, they also believed they could lose their salvation. The examples of nurses refusing pay highlight the seriousness with which Black nurses considered their actions, their freedom, and their salvation. Alongside accounts of those nurses who refused pay were those who, quote, charged with exemplary moderation, and some who did accept extra pay. In the latter cases, Jones and Allen did not condemn, but offered understanding and sympathy. They could not restrain nurses from accepting more, The work was loathsome. They did condemn acts of pilfering or mistreatment, of which they pointed out both white and black people were guilty. But they saw, and the mayor agreed, that wage inflation was created by the difficult working conditions, not by innate evil impulses on the part of black nurses. The social breakdown caused by the yellow fever pushed Jones and Allen, as it had others, to action and faithful trust in God's providence. Like Helmut, they recorded human cruelty and the failures of compassion, men and women abandoned to die, unseen and unassisted, and orphans and widows left helpless. They also acknowledged the powerful effects of fear on human actions. The only way to overcome this, they argued, was with God's assistance. God, quote, was pleased to strengthen us and remove all fear from us, and disposed our hearts to be as useful as possible. End quote. The narrative depends on this trust in God's providential direction. Although jo- Jones and Allen stressed human freedom in pursuing good works, they nonetheless narrated God's presence guiding their activity through the epidemic's misery. From the first, they wrote, quote, We found a freedom to go forth, confiding in Him who can preserve in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. They refer here to Daniel 3, a story of three Babylonian Jews who, refusing to worship their king's gods and golden image, were sentenced to death in a fiery furnace. Once the sentence was enacted, the king saw not three, but four men walking in the furnace. He was astonished and realized that the the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. The king ceased the punishment, and the three men emerged unscathed. Jones and Allen imagined the presence of God in their own sojourn into the fiery furnace of yellow fever, 
trusting in this presence to preserve them as they serve from their own free will and journey toward salvation. The epidemic reminded Philadelphia's Black community of God's providence and the salvific significance of all their work and action, whether rewarded in this life or not. These themes are reiterated in a series of paratexts that offered important messages of freedom, forgiveness, consolation, and justice, as well as other worldly rewards for those still enslaved. Jones and Allen wanted to suggest that, although free in body and will, the Black men and women who served in the epidemic might nonetheless have to wait for a deferred reward, that their work those spurned by men like Carrie, contributed to their salvation and had providential significance that might be fully realized only in retrospect. The yellow fever forced people to encounter human suffering and to ponder God's will, the freedom of humans to respond, and the meaning of their response. African-American workers responded to the fever and their work deserved credit from both their fellow mortals and their fellow Christians. They rightly feared their actions would be forgotten, especially when accounts like Carrie's slighted them. Jones and Allen wrote their narrative to defend and record their community's humanity, compassion, and service, born of their own free will and faith in God's providence. To end then, I want to emphasize that the figures described here did not perceive their care for the sick in response to yellow fever as separate from a sense of Christian calling or God's providential direction. Although they understood and represented their actions and motivations in different ways, depending on their individual work and religious beliefs, they all saw in the epidemic or described in the epidemic a call to human action and a need to reflect on God's providence. They described their actions with language from the Enlightenment. They reflected on an innate human sympathy. They grew troubled over their persistent failures of humanity, and they turned to God for direction, for models of service and sacrifice, and most importantly, for narrative forms. Attending to religious life and writing is crucial to understanding the yellow fever epidemic, how people responded, and how people narrated their response. These stories highlight the changing religious and intellectual world of the late 18th century, as well as the ways in which religious ideas and language continued to shape public service. Understanding the ways in which benevolence developed from a commitment to God's providence can highlight both its motivating potential for good and its inherent dangers. Helmut's zeal and determination, which were continuously reinvigorated by his providential faith, benefited his community, his own spiritual journey, and his professional reputation. Carrie's zeal and spin on the yellow fever, however, highlighted the salvific nature of the committee's response and their innate compassion while belittling the contributions of free Blacks and suggesting a racialized, innate sinfulness and avarice in their work. In claiming the greater benevolence for the white committee men, Carey relied on a powerful and appealing 
providential narrative. As Helmut, the committee, and Jones and Allen all realized, doing good could be of personal advantage. Their work certainly affected their reputations and careers, and they were all aware enough of these benefits to record their actions in both private and public writings. But they also interpreted the advantages of their work in a way consistent with Protestant tradition, in terms of the spiritual fruits it wrought in their own lives and the lives of others. Religion is a central part of the story of the yellow fever epidemic. God had not shape-shifted into a vague enlightenment creator that implanted an innate sense of compassion in humans. Nor had the idea of God limited the authors to passive contemplation of divine wrath and judgment. Religious belief and community, rather, had provided motivation and meaning for activity in the midst of intense misery. In their service and writings, Philadelphians turned to God with hope and happiness that their actions would not be lost to the moment of crisis or the passage of time. The epidemic reminded them of the limits of human sympathy. Yet these limitations also opened an opportunity to tell of the possibilities of human struggle, to overcome these obstacles, to transcend the chaos through both faith and human action. Now, wasn't that just tremendous? So to the Q&A, and here it is. Pippa Cook, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. And um, I wanted to start here, if I might. Um, Could you set the scene for us? Uh, This 1793 moment in Philadelphia, yellow fever, Sure. Um, so there, there was an outbreak of yellow fever, um, and they didn't mm-hmm. know exactly what it was. They didn't know exactly where it was coming from initially, um, and and there were debates over where it was coming from. If it was something that was, you know, from from like the sort of from the within the city, if it was something that had been imported to the city, um, these were all um, live sort of. epidemiological discussions at that time. Um, And a lot of scholars have have looked at the sort of scientific and medical debates um, in that moment to sort of highlight how it it shows like the emerging medical field um, in Philadelphia, which was a really central place in early American medicine. It's where the College of Physicians um, which was the first professional body of physicians, uh, was was located, was in Philadelphia. It's where one of the earliest medical schools was. Um, so there's all of these sort of central, um, c- sort of central p- pieces of the early republic right there, right? There's the federal government, there's the, the medical profession. They're all there and they're all hotly debating where this disease came from and what does it mean sort of in terms of if it was imported? Um, what does it mean in terms of the living conditions? What does it mean in terms of how people are, are how neighborhoods are set up? Um, so there's a lot of sort of political and medical debates that form around this disease um, as it spreads and as it becomes worse and worse. Um, and a lot of people flee the city, um, mm-hmm. inclu- yeah, including that. the government. Um, so most most government authorities left because it became so bad. Um, 
And a lot of other people who had the means would leave the city. Even people who didn't really have the means would leave the city because it just became so frightening. Um, and they would just kind of run. Is this still um, kind of the medical middle ages in this moment uh, as far as infectious disease goes? Uh, you mentioned the way that, I mean, bleeding was still a common therapeutic intervention that would get used, and you say for better or for worse, which I found really helpful, you know, because you kind of acknowledge to us that in many cases this was probably harmful, but undertaken with the expectation that it was uh, ameliorative, that it was therapeutic, yeah. that it was helpful. Uh, yeah, so um, I mean, there was still a there's a lot of shifts in medicine and the the people in Philadelphia, the medical practitioners were trained in various places. Um, and, and, and because of that sort of training, um, depending on, so like would, if they had gone to, to Leiden or if they'd gone to Edinburgh or, you know, there's various sort of theories of disease coming in to the United States from the different medical schools that they may have trained at in Europe. Um, and, and that affected how they understood the disease. Um, sort of on the ground, I would say the general understanding of medicine is still in transition in this moment from sort of a more, you know, humoral medicine, which is maybe what you mean by me medicine of the Middle uh, Ages. Yes, I think um, you're, yeah, you have, you have, you have the better terminology. Yeah, I mean, and there's different terminology, but this, the bleeding is coming in a way from, it's, it's a remnant of that humoral medicine, um, the understanding that if you have, um, if you have a fever that's, that, that can be corrected by, by, you know, creating new, uh, creating balance once again, and, um, and, and in order to create that balance that requires releasing some of the blood. Um, in your body. And that can then, once you do that, once you create that balance again, you, you will, the fever will um, decrease is the understanding. Right. It's all about sort of searching for some ill-defined equilibrium that is kind of more intuitive yeah. than it is demonstrated or yeah. provable. I mean, on the other side, and on the other, it's not provable, but it is it is something that's very visible, right? And I think that's one of the reasons humoral medicine maintained a sort of lasting um, appreciation among like lay lay people is that it's like, oh, I have a fever, let me let some of this blood out, right? Like you, it, there's a visible thing that you are doing to that that. Whereas when yes, like for example, like Peruvian bark and the treatment of malaria, it doesn't you don't nothing's released from you. Like, and so they didn't understand it. Like they were like, well, how can that work? Right. Like I'm taking this tincture and I'm, my fever is reducing, but there's no sort of output. There's nothing that is coming out of my body to, that would make me feel like I'm releasing corruption. Right. Where does this uh, epidemic fit into kind of historiography of the early American Republic more broadly? Right. So, um, uh, it's right in the aftermath of if 17, it's the first term of the Washington administration, right? So it's right smack at the beginning. Um, uh, the constitution is a, a very new thing. Uh, the American Republic is still like quite fragile. Uh, we're only a few years removed from, uh, 
all those ratification debates and the kind of beginnings of uh, that early party system. So what role in that story does this epidemic play kind of more generally? Is it just sort of show up as some kind of, you know, supporting character figure or did it reverberate through events more broadly in a way that surfaces in the stories that historians tell about? I think historically it was probably extremely significant for that year. And, you know, there were subsequent epidemics for several years in Philadelphia. They it was like a 1796 and 1797 um, yellow fever epidemic as well. Um, so I think it was, it had a huge force in their lives that, that we don't remember because, or I mean, I think we're, the historians are doing a much better job, but I think maybe they also put it in the past once it became, you know, less of a, less of an immediate experience. Right. Um, Historiographically, I think, you know, I think you're right. Like Pax Americana is a great example. I think that there's, in terms of like more broadly, the history of disease and the history of medicine. Um, and and I mostly work on early America. Um, it, there's been just really fantastic scholarship that's been, you know, some of it's maybe older. Like, did you say Fenn's book came out 20 years ago? ish yeah i can't remember I think, uh, something like 2000 yeah something around there yeah. yeah and even before that this um the sort of collection of essays that billy smith and the smith and estes collection of essays um a melancholy scene of devastation i think is the title of that um that's on the yellow fever specifically and it brings together um a number of just fantastic essays um about this event in american history um there's uh, like i mentioned some really significant scholarly work on the politics of the yellow fever and how you know the reactions to it and sort of the policy that came out and the medical treatments reflect early divisions in the federal government this is definitely not something that i learned about in college, um, um, in the early two thousands, um, I was an American studies major. So maybe, I don't know, we, we did other, we did other fun things, but disease and health and medicine were not really viewed as, or they, they were not part of the curriculum in terms of understanding American history. Um, and the way I think it's become much more of a topic, um, lately and i imagine it will be a huge topic yeah right i think that there is a natural sort of way in which it it works well with like the history of politics i mean it's obviously a history of medicine discussion and the history Mm -hmm. historians of medicine have looked at things like yellow fever and smallpox for a long time there's there are books that go back to the 1950s on like cotton mather is the first influential figure in american medicine um uh, but I think that um, it, it's a natural discussion for um, historians of of, um, of politics because of the sort of like, you know, there's the body politic and there's the body, right? The human body. And and so there's this way in right. which we can talk about these things and, and it, it makes sense. Um, it's not that far afield. Once once there was that sort of social history turn in, his, in, in the field of history and then, you know, the cultural history turn, um, it, it seems like this, these sorts of things are, or 
automatically. Yeah, well, and I'm glad you bring that thread up because that is the, the approach that you have in the talk. It feels much more like cultural, intellectual history. Like that's that's what it reminded me of. You're dealing with a lot of religious concepts and how they interact with the uh, scientific knowledge of the time, right? How these actors in this moment in Philadelphia of 1793 are kind of drawing upon both of these, uh, uh, they have intellectual resources derived both from their religious persona and uh, the medical professionalization of medicine, the uh, medical knowledge that they had to make some sense, right? To, uh, and also, you know, you, you, you bring in some uh, sort of enlightenment secularism ideas, right? Free exercise, religious toleration, these concepts that were written into, literally, textually into the First Amendment, um, which is still very recent development <laughs> in this moment. So these are concepts that have truck politically, you know, uh, uh, at the level of, of at, mm -hmm. at, at a non-elite level, right? Um, uh, at the same time that they're fusing this with their understanding of scriptural primacy and trying to uh, reckon with all that and the outcome. So how would you, you know, describe that interchange? I mean, you do that in the talk a lot, right? But, um, but what is because it, it it seemed to me like what you were saying was that both of these reference points gave these actors uh, uh, a degree of agency over how they were going to respond to uh, this epidemic and what they were going to take from it. And there's a, seems to be like a dialogue going on between these reference points and, and the disease ecology of yellow fever at this moment that kind of ends up affecting those ideas yeah. moving forward. Yeah. And I mean, I think that like it, for me, it was a very provocative moment to imagine in terms of, of the sort of religious response to the fever, in part because of this question of free exercise that's emerging, right? And these Enlightenment ideas that are all around them, um, and the Enlightenment ideas that are influencing how people are understanding the disease and um, how they're understanding charity and and sort of, or philanthropy, Um and I think that for me, that that sort of means that their religious response, like their that's live on the ground, is both a religious response that's been shaped by centuries of you know Christian ideas about um, how you respond to disease, um, but also, but that's that, that all of that centuries of experience, all of that sort of foundation that they all are bringing into it, is also now in conversation with this this enlightened republic um, where, you know, religion and its relationship to the state is all of a sudden in a, in a much more complicated, it's a much more complicated story than it's ever been before. Um, and so what does it mean to, to, you know, to, to serve your neighbor? Um, and, and is, how does that relate to your religious life? And is it something that's just a voluntary society, like this new, this new, 
thing that exists um, in the Republic, in the early Republic, a voluntary society that is not rooted necessarily in a religious community. Um, and and um, people like Jess Roney have written about this. Like, what are these voluntary societies? Why do people participate in them? What purpose are they serving? Are they replacing churches? And I think that that's what's so interesting to me about the yellow fever is it's playing out in this moment where religion means, it doesn't mean something different, but it it could mean something different, right? Like they're right there um, trying to figure out where religion fits into this world. Um, and so for me, that's why I find it this incredibly provocative moment to think about in terms of religion. Yeah. And there's a lot of religious concepts that you talk us through benevolence, providence, which seemed by like the late 20th, early 21st century for mm-hmm. kind of more secular palette, right? Yeah. Translate into ideas like destiny and karma and things. So these, these, these ideas are still very much present in the culture, absolutely, even yeah. if you're a non-believer. Um, and uh, <laughs> as they were, right? And, and they, those are resources that people draw yeah. upon in the present in this COVID-19 moment to kind of make sense. Invariably, that's going to have an impact moving forward on the yeah. sustainability of those concepts for certain people um, uh, and others. And I assume we'll, you know, I expect we'll start to see that surface in the culture if we haven't already. But one of the things I wanted to explore is how how these actors deal with fear um, and how fear plays out in terms of, uh, you know, their response to what's going on. How, why do they stay um, and do this? And how do they kind of overcome that fear? And how do they interpret that? Um, I'm, I'm really interested in sort of emotional experience of disease. And I think religious studies kind of gives us a way to think about that. Um, so I, so one of the things that's happening right now is there's this sense and this enlightenment sense of sensibility, right. Of, of an innate, an innate compassion that humans have for um, their fellow humans. Um, And all of these actors are like, well, where does that, what happens if you're so scared, you don't want to give any compassion to your fellow humans. Um, And so one of the things I'm interested in is how these, the people I'm looking at in in the talk sort of respond to that moment of like, I'm so scared. Why am I staying? Why am I still doing this? Right. Cause that, that is something the the people you're dealing with are the ones who stay. They're the ones who don't leave. And that in itself is there's a there's a stratification dynamic there too because most people you describe either leave or want to leave so the 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 people who are left behind uh some of whose stories you you relate to us uh, mm-hmm. are yeah. unusual or exceptional in that yeah. regard um or atypical, maybe that would be the better way to frame it. Um, one of them is this uh, gentleman Heinrich Helmut, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, right? He the uh, uh, he was pastor of the largest Lutheran congregation in North America. Yeah. Seems to have written quite a bit. So you have this very rich resource to draw upon in reconstructing some of 
these dynamics with respect to fear, emotional response to disease. He also wrote well, a right? published account that was fairly popular. So he, and like like Carrie, like Matthew Carey's account is the most mm-hmm. popular, um, the most like sort of appearing in multiple editions. Helmut's account appears in German and in English and in more than one edition in both languages. Um, and I think that I, I find Helmut really fascinating in part because Carrie is also really interested in Helmut. Carrie doesn't really know what to do with Helmut. He's, he's impressed with him. Um, but he's also distressed by what Helmut continues to do, which is hold religious services throughout the epidemic. And he kind of, he, he, not kind of, he does blame Helmut for, uh, for the sort of, for a higher rate of death among, um, among the people in his congregation. Yeah. Because of the lack of what we would call social (laughs) distancing, it sounds like, right? Wow. So that, that dynamic is playing out in 1793. Yeah. I mean, we have a Supreme Court decision yeah. from a month ago that's still in, in Helmut's uh, defense, to which I'm not really sure so, okay, I, I want to give, but he, they did have the windows open at church and they stood as far apart from each other as possible. Um, and they mostly did, and they had shortened services and they mostly dedicated the services. Um, according to him anyway, they mostly would dedicate it to like conveying public health information. So it wasn't like he was blind to this um, sort of, question yeah well and realistically that that, that's more responsible than some of the behavior we've seen in 2021 and 2020 when we have a much stronger grasp of yeah of the science right behind social distancing and and and, and, so i think i mean helmut's just a really fascinating character because he's because he's like responsible and irresponsible he's out there helping people and one of the reasons why there's more burials in the Lutheran burial ground is because they were willing to take in people that weren't Lutherans into their burial ground, um, which a lot of other churches weren't willing to do. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's hard to know exactly how his actions had, if they had a negative impact, how big of a negative impact they had on his community. But he, you know, it, but Carrie's kind of, he, he's one of the figures in Carrie's story. Carrie is the figure who puts oh, together no, the committee he's, to okay, sorry, the committee to alleviate the suffering. I'm, I'm it's a really long name. Uh, um, yeah. It is yeah. a very long. Um, yes. So, it's, uh, it's so Carrie is—he's not—he doesn't put it together. Carrie actually flees the city for like three weeks. Um, uh, he's a publisher and he's on the committee, and he's um, the first person to publish an account of the yellow fever. Um, and, and it goes through multiple editions and it's the, one of the most sort of significant sources that people immediately had of the yellow fever. And that, you know, it's still, um, it's still important for historians today, but he's, he's very critical of black nurses. Um, and, um, and, and he's very, and he's critical of Helmut, but he also celebrates Helmut. So that's, that's sort of one of the, that's one of the threads that can connect all of the different people I look at is, is Carrie who's on the committee. Um, but also this very problematic figure. 
And these people sort of knew each other, right? I mean, they, or knew of each other. I mean, the, even Philadelphia in 1793 is one of the bigger places in North America, but by contemporary standards, still pretty small. Um, uh, so these these are all people who are known to one another and live in relative yeah. close proximity yeah. to one another in um, there's, you know, there's, urban Philadelphia. Uh, there's a good study by Billy Smith um a more recent book on yellow fever. And and there's also, I can't remember, there's been some work like on kind of mapping the neighborhoods of Philadelphia um, and seeing where like the transmission rates were, um, mm-hmm. were or were not the transmission, the sort of um, the, the, where the cases were most prevalent um, because it is, I don't know if I mentioned this, but it is something that's spread through a mosquito. Um, right. And yeah. so it's kind of the, you know, where the sort of, the low lying parts of the city were where there was a proximity to water, those sorts of places were in higher danger. Um, and so you can kind of see some people were much more affected than, than others. Um, but it is, so it's a small city, but there is pretty intense strat, like sort of stratification class wise. And also in terms of who was getting most harmed by this, um, by this fever. And was there, I mean, I was, the ability to flee is probably informed or dictated to a certain degree by access to resources, right? So if you were less well off, probably you're more likely to be stranded in Philadelphia itself and thus more susceptible yeah. to yeah. acquisition of, of the disease. So you might be able to flee, like even on foot or in a cart. Right. But where do you go? And I, you know, I read letters from the outskirts of Philadelphia of people being like, did you come from the city to get out of here? Right. Like, don't come near me. Right. So if you, you know, if you had family who was yeah. willing to take you in, like, that's one thing. Um, if you left early enough, right, before kind of word had spread. But they, because they didn't know how the disease was transmitted there, and they kind of almost thought of it as a plague. Right. Um or some of them did, there was a real resistance and reluctance to sort of among some people to even shelter um, refugees from the city. Uh, so that's also, you know, part of the equation. You had talked about this mm-hmm. uh, race relations issue with mm-hmm. respect to the African-American community. There are African-American nurses um, and black undertakers. These people seem really like community leaders. They have, um, they're, they're working in conjunction with Absalom Jones, you talk about, and Richard Allen, these, these uh, uh, AME pastors. Uh, what's that dynamic like? And, and I mean, you, you, you talk about the mm-hmm. uh, tension that Kerry sets up, right, in his memoir with how uh, he's, yeah, he's he, he's he writes pretty disparagingly of right the reaction from that community. Um, how? Right. Well, I mean, I think you know. D- does that does Jones that and out Allen write this sort of uh, unbelievable response to Carrie? That's uh, unbelievable in the sense that it's just a, it's a remarkable um, piece of writing that um, I, I find every time I read it, it's just it's stunning and it's sort of explanate its defense of the community. Um, it's forthright defense of what they did. Yes. Yes. 
it is and it's and the way it that they like frame it and it's it's not yeah, it's a rebuttal. I mean it's they frame it by saying we're doing exactly what you all did, right? You know, you you voluntarily went for the committee men all voluntarily went forth and, and decided to serve the community um from their own free will and and from um and from their understanding of human compassion. And and that's what we're doing too, and that's what we did. Um and and it's a I think it's a remarkable moment because they're grounding, they're grounding in this, their response to the yellow fever. They're grounding a defense of their, you know, common humanity um, and equality. Um, and and they're also doing it. What's most interesting for me is they're also making a, a really strong appeal to the sense that they're called to do this work by God. Um, and the language that they're using of of free will. Um, uh, is is very much grounded in their in their understanding of of human um, of Christian of a Christian calling within the, within the Methodist tradition. Um, yeah, I mean, it, right? It sounds. Like, speaking of intellectual resources, to be drawing upon, right? It seems like because free will is is implicated in uh, these kind of more secularized enlightenment ideas about republicanism and uh, citizenship and, and uh, but also very present in the th theological framing that both of these pastors are, are giving to this moment. And uh, that, is really interesting because it almost makes it sound and correct me if I'm wrong, but that Kerry is addressing them as social inferiors and they reply as social equals. There's no expectation on their part in this rebuttal that that deference is owed. It's amazing. It's really, I mean, seems I, I can see why I mean, it sounds like I a really interesting source. <laughs> um, You know, I've never taught it. And, How does it and teach? I, and it sounds like it would be great in a classroom I, you know, I teach, with, with um, students and things. I teach religion in America, um, and I have to get through 16 weeks of material. So I talk about it, um, but I teach Jarena Lee, who is a woman, a female Methodist preacher, instead of teaching uh, this. Um, but I've thought about sort of going back. My students love it when I talk about medicine and disease, and they'll probably love it even more <laughs> moving forward. So this will probably become something that I will teach um, because it's a rich right. source. Well, and it's, yeah. it's a source that is deeply religious. Um, they talk about the fiery furnace. They talk about how they look back on their time in the fiery furnace. And, and you know, that's this key scriptural passage that, you know, there's God is there with them, right. Um, as they're going through this sojourn of, of misery, right. This, this ultimate testing, they, that's how they view what they went through with the fever. Um, so yeah, it's yeah. a, it's a remarkable piece of literature. Yeah. Sounds amazing. Yeah. It sounds, you know, I mean, I, I'm always on the lookout for good, I love document-based teaching and I love, you know, bringing primary sources into, uh, you know, I, I love seeing the way students encounter that stuff and the way they respond to it. But I also just feel like it lends so much credibility anytime we're 
lecturing or talking and you can kind of describe this, but then if you quote one letter or, uh, you know, one memoir, one passage, what have you, uh, it really just renders it all very, very seamless. Um, so think something like that. I mean, I'll, I'll make sure we put it in the episode notes so that people, if they do, cause it sounds to me yeah. like something, if I was teaching in this period, like that, I'd, you know, want to at least consult and think about excerpting. It also um, does a really remarkable in, job in a lecture or in an assignment. Scene, I think um, um, in terms of giving a vivid depiction wow. of, of what the sort of symptoms were like. Um, and uh, so even in a non-religious studies class, I think you would, you can gain a lot from this source in terms of understanding. It gives you a feel for colonial Philadelphia, or not colonial, sorry, um, early Republican Philadelphia. And it gives you a feel for race issues in that time period. And, um, and it feel for like what, what a disease was like, what a quarantine was like, what it was like to nurse people, what it was like to cart people through the streets, how it smelled, um, you know. One of the things you talk about is that there was a choice that gets made that kind of sets them apart from the beginning in the sense that these people stay, others, most people either choose to leave or want to go. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that sets them apart from the outset. Uh, they engage in this charitable relief work, this philanthropy work. And in the process of doing that, they don't um, uh, just do things, but end up becoming something else, mm -hmm. right? So there's a degree of transformation that happens uh, to them personally and communally. Is that something that shows up in their religious practice or the theological uh, progressions that you track in your own work? Yeah, I mean, I, in a way... I read all of their accounts, like to, to write a narrative of disease in this time period is to sort of practice a, a really common Christian practice of, of, you know, repentance and reflection and, and, you know, and, and sort of this, this sort of retrospective task of looking back on your life and trying to make meaning of whatever, whatever went before and what you you're doing to sort of respond to some sort of moment of crisis and then to like, and to sort of, then there's this release. Right. And I think that all of their narratives follow in that practice, even though the committee's narrative and the committee minutes and, and then Carrie's own narrative are sort of, they're more secular. Right. But they're, they're still sort of that same sort of, they're, they're coming out of that practice of this is how, this is how you respond to, to, to pain and suffering as you, you know, you turn to God um, and you try to understand what the, the sort of meaning this has in your life. Um, and so I think that it, it builds out of that tradition. Um, even the more secular account, I think, builds from that same tradition, that same sort of habit of practice, that sort of religious habit. Um, and for all of them, because they wrote these really evocative accounts, um, they all became, you know, well known, um, uh, and that and that ended up having an influence on their careers moving forward. Um, and so, it, and you could call it, you know, you could say it had an influence on their salvation if you wanted to like talk about it in their own kind of religious language. But for it, it, it you know, it, it it meant that their calling really meant something, um, and that they were successful, right, or that they. Mm -hmm. um, 
Well, it sounds like they they derived a sense of meaning that that ends up shaping their identity, yeah, yeah. Uh, vis-a-vis community, and that's basically we talk about community is so important the kind of creation of community in this early republic moment that's going to have political valence to it as well yeah. and they all take a great amount of pleasure in their accomplishment which i find and they even say that like that's like even carrie is like this is some of the happiest moments of my life that i you know participated in this wow. work um and i think that that's really i don't know that we'll ever get there <laughs> Right now, like I don't know that people yeah. will ever think of that, but I think there is a sense of accomplishment and what they were able to do, right? And the sense that they were able to keep moving forward, um, that they were able to work for order. Well, this is like it's sort of an o- overcoming mm-hmm. that yeah. fear. I mean, you 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 introduced the concept of fear earlier and trying to track people's responses to it, and uh, there are some fear overcomments as well, right? In in each of these, you kind of talk about the three, you know, we have Helmut, we have Carrie, Carrie's narrative and the committee as, uh, and then we have the AME pastors and the African-American nurses and undertakers, and they all have a role to play in, I guess, mitigating this. And then, you know, as community leaders, kind of carrying each of their respective communities through, uh, through this this Philadelphia yeah. experience. Yeah, I think so. And 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 sort of setting a groundwork for what it all means moving forward. Um giving some people some hope at the end of it all. So well hope is a wonderful place for us to wrap and I just want to thank you for allowing us to end on that note and thank you for contributing this work to the series and um engaging in the research because I think it's going to help contribute a lot of context to not just the listeners, but your students and and certainly to me. (laughs) Well, thanks for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. Wonderful to have you. Thank you. Pippa Cook. Thank you for joining Pippa Cook and myself this week. And please come back next time when Christopher D.E. Willoughby will share with us his take on the intersectional story of public health, race, and slavery in the antebellum United States. Chris is one of the rising stars in this field, and he put together a remarkable piece of work in connection with next week's episode of season one. So do be sure to come back next time, and I'll look forward to catching you then.